Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. First off, got a content warning. This interview contains descriptions and discussions about suicidal thoughts and mental health illness, and those may be distressing to some listeners. If this raises questions or causes distress, please call Lifeline on 13 1114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 I'd like to welcome Robert to the show today. Hi, Robert. G'day. How are you, Bill? Good, thank you. Uh, Robert's a compulsive gambler who's recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, so, Robert, we usually start talking about family and growing up and the things that influenced you and particularly the things that influenced you to take the path you took in life. So what was life like growing up for you? Interesting, terrifying. Look, I can remember, and for me, it really started when I was about five years old. I can remember my parents near killing each other every Friday and Saturday night. And always the, um, the, the argument was about money. And, and they were physically violent with each other, completely disrespectful. And, and, it, and it was awful. I can remember as a five-year-old praying, praying, the Our Fathers, as many Our Fathers, fathers and Hail Marys as you can possibly imagine, begging, begging God to fix my parents so that, so that I could go to sleep. Because I'd be, I'd be up until one, two, three o'clock in the morning with the pillow stuffed over my head trying to remember trying to trying to go to sleep and trying to find some sort of uh, sanity and peace in it all and it didn't happen and I actually remember saying at the time because God didn't do what I was I was begging him to do I went well you don't you, you don't you, you aren't there you, I don't believe in you. you it's not true so and that was the, that was the beginning beginning of, of my journey it was the connection of, of of gambling because my father he worked three jobs and he was running a he was running an SP bookmaking do on the side on on Saturdays and Sundays with the dogs and the and the trots plus that uh, both my parents were alcoholic very sophisticated alcoholics and because of a back injury my mother became a morphine addict and my father quickly followed so they were both uh, using morphine uh, alcohol gambling you name it and it was um, it was fairly isolating for me, in actual fact. So I can re- I can remember they and they in the end my parents divorced, and going to a Catholic school, you can imagine I, I became a pariah instantly because Catholics don't divorce, and here I am, an only boy out of six hundred in in a Catholic school. And my parents divorced, so they sent me to Coventry because they didn't want to catch the the, the, the disease of divorce. So I, I had a great resentment towards the Catholics and, and, and boys' schools at that stage. But I can remember my parents finally did separate and, and, and went through the divorce. I was forced to make a choice which one I wanted to go to with, 
then the magistrate said, well, who do you want to go with? I can't make up my mind. You, you, need, to, you need to decide who you want. So I decided to go with my mother. Next thing I know, a couple of weeks later, we've gone, gone down to the, the local Chinese to celebrate a birthday with the next door neighbour and her two kids. And, um, and of course, she's had an alcoholic episode and started shouting and carrying on and taking her home. And I'm standing upstairs, you know, terrified out of my wits, wondering, you know, it was because it, it was a townhouse. And, um, and she's, she, I overhear her saying, take him, I don't want him anymore. Get rid of him. Get him out of the house, take him tonight. I don't want him. Which literally broke my heart. And I can remember very clearly, it was burnt into my memory. I can remember very clearly making the decision to not forgive her for that. And funnily enough, I knew really, really deeply that that was the wrong thing to do, but I couldn't help myself. I made that decision. And that was my, that be un, not forgiving her was my way of keeping her away from me because I didn't, I, because of the pain and the hurt that I, that I felt as a result of what she was doing. And I, I didn't see her for about 12 months. Um, and, and, but yet, uh, and I had no idea. My, my parents didn't come and tell me and talk to me and say, look, this is what's going on, blah, blah, blah. I just got left with this woman and her two children. We'd be sleeping in a, in a double bed. And I, and I wasn't going to school for a fair while. And then finally I started going to school. And next thing I know, my, my parents are, are uh, my father's come and he's taken me away and I'm living with him for a while. And then next thing I know, they're getting back together again. And um, and not, nothing ever explained to me or said to me. It was just like instant happy families again, supposedly. But I was constantly on, on edge and I still hadn't been told what was going on. And in actual fact, what had happened was my father didn't lay off a bet as an SP bookmaker, lost it, lost the house, lost everything, lost his job as a result as well at the time. So... He was desperately trying to bring, and that's why my mother did divorce him because she couldn't stand it. And on top of that, he he embezzled fifty thousand pounds from a from his employer at the time. So he was on, and 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 the police were looking for him. So here we are trying to play happy families. Not, and I didn't know this at that time. And by this stage, I'm a, I'm going on to 14, 15, 16. and I got sick and tired of school because nobody's talking to me. No one wants to wants to catch the disease of divorce. Um, so I just made the, the arbitrary decision to wag school. No one came looking for me. And I went and found myself a job as a, as a sales assistant in the Race Brothers Bondi Junction in, um, in Sydney. Next thing I know, things are starting to hit the fan. I think, I think the police were getting close to catching the dad. And I didn't know at that stage they were living under an assumed name, and I was still living under my name. So it was, you know, it was a good chance that they were, they might catch up you know, through me, find my dad. Yeah, we had the same name. And I get home one Saturday morning from from work from from Grace Brothers, and um, uh, obviously, and you know the feeling, you know that you 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 identify the feeling really quickly that there was yet another argument, you know, another another argument between them. My father had taken off on, in the car to go driving around the block, whatever, to try and calm down. And my mother's up all upset. And next thing I know, she's gone off into the kitchen. And, I, and, and my way of coping at that stage was the, the TV. I'm just going to lunch and look at the TV 
and that was it. I would, I would, I would concentrate and focus just on the TV and block, try and block out everything else. That was, that was my way of, of handling at the time. So I can hear her rustling around in the kitchen, and um, and next thing I know, she comes out in the doorway facing me with this huge carving knife in her in her hands. And I'm all about 15, 16 at that stage. And I've just gone. Something else took over me. I look back and I think, geez, I handled that really responsibly. I just there was something that took over a spirit that took over me, and I just got to the telephone. And, start, and rang the ambulance. And by that time, she'd run out the back door and, and tried to try to run off out, out through, over the, over other people's uh, fences. When the ambulance arrived, and they, were, they weren't that far away, so they arrived fairly quickly within about three or four minutes. And there was only one ambulance driver, and both of us were, were, were trying to find mum. We finally found her after about 20 minutes, and then we took her off to Eastern Suburbs Hospital at that, in, that, in those days, and, and they sewed her up, and nothing was said. That was it. There's no explanation, no nothing, and you know, you just that's just another another day in the life of our family. And you put that behind you, and you keep on going. You keep on, you keep the facade up, and you keep on going. In looking back these days, I, I I understand that for me, that's where I started to learn. For me to cope with all of that and the way my parents were, I learned to be. I learned to tell a good lie. I learned to tell a good story about how life was at home. I learned how to deceive people and, and make out like they're okay when they're not. And I became really good at it. Possibly that's probably why I became a good sales assistant as well. And at 12 years old, um, I can remember being feeling really sorry for my mum and, and I'd saved up some money from, from my pocket money and I had about two pounds at that stage. I said, oh, I'm going to take you for, for Mother's Day, I'm going to take you to um, South Sydney Leagues Club and, that's, and then those days, kids could go there. And I did that and bought her lunch, bought us lunch because they, they subsidised lunch because they, they were really well into the poker machines by that stage. And that's what was really making the money for them. And she said, and so when we finished lunch, she, she, and she really enjoyed it and she thought it was good and she, and she, she was definitely pleased with me doing that. Uh, this was prior to her throwing me away. She said, oh, come on. And she went straight. And, we were, and kids were allowed to play the poker machines in those days. So she sat me up in a poker machine next to her, gave me a handful of one-bob coins, and lo and behold, first coin, first pull, 60-pound jackpot, which is, yeah, it was enough for the two, two grown man's wages in those, those days, or pretty close enough too. So, oh, this is a great way of making money. Wow. You know, and that stuck with me for quite a long time. And I can remember this last second, second time that, that, um, that the gambling bud bit me. I can remember thinking, I'm, I don't, you know, I'm feeling really low. I don't know how to pick myself up. What do I, what do I, re- what, you know, what in my life did I really enjoy? And I remembered that moment. And I thought, oh, well, I know enough about life today. I know enough how to control myself. And I was short about five or six, oh no, yeah, about six or seven dollars for an art project that I was trying to trying to put together. So I thought, oh, well, I've only got eight dollars, so I'll go and I'll go and put it in these poker machines. Uh, remembering that moment, thinking I, I'll be able to control myself, I'll be able to get, win that, win what I want, and then walk away. And I and I, and I did. I won. I won a few more dollars than than I wanted. And I thought that was pretty good, and I walked away. But it was on that one experience that took me 15 years to stop after that and that was here in 
here in Hobart in, in, in Tassie. And that led me to being living on the street for eight months while working full time. So what was it about the gambling initially? Was there any attraction? It was the sudden win and that and that instant instant win of money and and this feeling of, of this amazing excitement that came with it, which was just totally wiped anything else off the scale with that first win on, win on the poker machine. And, and I was just amazed. Of course, I, you're not allowed, kids aren't allowed to walk in into a, into a, a lease club on their own. You have to be accompanied by a parent. And that was a lot. I never went there again. Of course, shortly, not long after, my mum threw me away as such. And so there was that opportunity never came came to bear again until later on when I was married and I was about 24, 25 and, and, and I found myself all of a sudden attracted to the poker machines and started playing them and, and I became addicted to them at that stage. Do you sort of remember why you went back to them? Most people sort of that I speak to, it's an anxiety or a loneliness or a, a desire to to leave it all behind. What was yours? Loneliness would have been attached to it because I, and, and for me, because I was, I, I, I become a really good liar and deceiver, I, I lied to, I was, I was working for the public service at that stage, uh, the federal public service as, a, as an interviewer for the Commonwealth Employment Service. And I was really good at telling a good story, but just telling enough truth to get by and, and selling, getting my way in. And I'd do the work. Um, I, I was, I was a good, always a good worker, but I lied my way into the public service uh, saying that I had a high school certificate, which I didn't because I dropped out of third form, and, and I covered my tracks fairly well. And when they explored that, it was I was able to get out of it uh, by, a, a, well, I, yeah, I thought it was a fluke, but it was probably my higher power trying to look after me at that stage. But anyway, the thing was, I was really anxious and frightened about being caught. I knew very well that after I was a level four in the public service, if I get to a level five, I knew very well that there's a there's an ASIO clearance to get past level five and they look into your past and they have a really good look at who you are and where you've come from and, what, and what, where you've been. And I started becoming frightened because I was, they were saying, oh, look, you know, we think you should, you're, you're getting close to becoming a level five, blah, blah, blah. So all sorts of anxieties came up with that uh, and fears of being found out through things I couldn't control. And on top of that, because I was deceptive, I was deceiving people, I could never make a, make a, a good connection with anybody. And people liked what I said, but they knew there was something not quite right. That, you know, and when I look back, I can see that clearly today. They knew there was something not quite right, so there's always this little cloud of he's not quite right, he's okay, he does the job, but there's always this, this barrier, and it was my lying and my deceiving that was the barrier. But I couldn't see that at the time. I, you know, I, this is the way I, I coped and survived. That, that was normal. Yeah. That was it's just the way how you My parents lied and, and deceived each other all the time. I learned that really, really quickly. You know, this is the way you do it. You, you don't tell the truth about what you did and divert attention somewhere else. All these, you know, I learned all these things. This is just part of growing up. Yeah, survival 101, yeah. Correct. Okay, well, listen, we might, we might take a short break and we'll have a song and some announcements. 
Uh, that song was by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks and called Pink Shirt, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Join the global slut walk movement to end slut shaming and victim blaming. Tune into 3CR on November 14th at 1pm. Turn it up loud and let the speeches fill the streets. Tell the world, even in a pandemic, we will not be silenced. Slutwalk, it's a controversial name, not a controversial message. Slutwalk Melbourne, it's a 3CR supporter. Good girls bet a man with a beard, but God is a woman and she's tough and she's queer. Good girls are waiting in the pins and the bad girls are laughing because they know he's a dick. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855kHz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free show and how to contact us. Today, I'm talking about compulsive gambling uh, with Robert and also talking about recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So you said you were married, you got back to the pokies. So what happened when you started gambling again after, I think you said it was about 15 years? Oh, no, about 10 years before, yeah. So I would have been about 23, 22, 23, 24, and um, 20, about 22, and I, and I lied my way into the public service, which I was able to block out for a while, but then I started becoming anxious about getting caught, being found out, all that sort of stuff, as I was being pushed up the, up the promotional ladder and, and getting more responsibility because as, as you had to do a check past a certain, certain point in, in management, and in the back of my head, my way out was to win money. That was the plan. If I have a lot of money, I'll be able to jump ship and find another way to... And, and, and I had all these philanthropic dreams and delusions about, well, if I win the big one, a big lotto win, I can buy this for this person and this for that person and all this sort of stuff, all the classic, classic uh, compulsive, addictive, uh, obsessive gambles, uh, delusions but I found myself then because I was alone because people didn't quite sense that I was okay and they, they were, and, and of course I'd never talked about my family because I knew if I did they would they would quickly realize how much I hated my mother in those days wasn't a very common thing and or it's especially in the crowds that I was that I was having to work with I never talked about family and that was noticed I'm fairly sure that was that was pretty well known. So I, I was isolating myself inadvertently. So I, at lunchtime, I go I'd go to the one of the local uh, clubs and 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 of course the poker machines were there and I could and I could uh, hide in the poker machine. You know, here's another little screen 
and and I could hide in that screen and nothing mattered. And that was the the real track. It was like a a, a, a willing hypnosis type of effect. People call it a sort of a safe zone. Yeah. And that's what I was looking for is that, you know, here I've been, you know, all day long from the time I wake to the time I go to sleep, I've got all this worry about am I going to be caught? How am I going to handle this? And, of course, I started putting in much more money into the poker machines than I can afford to in the hope that I was going to win a big jackpot and I could, and I could make it up. And, so, and that started eating into my mortgage. And next thing I knew, I'm not paying the mortgage. Money from the mortgage was going into the machines and, and, and that gap was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And because I didn't know how to tell the truth about myself, I was just going sliding down this slippery slope and didn't know how to stop. I didn't, because I didn't know how to tell the truth, I couldn't stop. So what about your wife? Did she know you were gambling? She had no idea. That things weren't good at home because of my inability to be honest and open. Our relationship was just getting worse and worse and worse. She didn't work. She had no idea of the finances. She was just hoping, she was just believing that I was paying the rent or paying the, the mortgage and paying for the food on the during the week and thought everything was okay financially. From a personal point of view, we weren't we weren't going well at all. We hardly even oh, I don't think we talked other than say hello, uh, you know, what do you want for dinner? Have you, you know, have you done this for the kids or whatever? But uh, it was it was dead. But I was used to that from that's how I grew up. My parents had no, had hardly any relationship with me at all. Um, I was an addendum to them as far as I was concerned. I was just part of the furniture. So I was used to being just part of the furniture, and that's how I was in, the, in, that, in that marriage and that relationship. Did you have children? Yes, two, son and a daughter. And, I, yeah, they were fine. We certainly, I certainly looked after them, but then all of a sudden it got to the point after about three years of this, of course, and, and, and every month I was putting off the building society. They were saying, oh, yeah, you haven't, we haven't received a payment for you from you, blah, blah, blah. And they just did this for almost three years. And I would give one excuse or one reason after another and just not pay and not pay and not pay and not pay and not pay. And all of a sudden, of course, they just went, look, we can't do this anymore. We're foreclosing on the mortgage. And, of course, that freaked out. I freaked out at that. That that was the beginning of the end for me. And this inability to tell the truth, the old saying, couldn't lie straight in bed, you know, that was pretty much how I was. I just couldn't. I just could not tell the truth. And constitutionally incapable of it at the time. But, you know, and I'm faced with it. They're about to foreclose, and I'm trying to hide it. And I can't hide it. So, I, and I'm and I'm forced with having to tell my my wife and her family that I've lost the house, and I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I, and I, I actually made the decision to to take my life at that stage. Found myself sitting in a in the garage at home in the dark, in a beanbag that was sitting in the garage, ready to, ready to do the job. I closed my eyes and suddenly I saw something in my mind which made me, and I knew I, knew I, was, I wanted to die because I, I knew I, I, at, that, at that moment I, I was more afraid. Like I just couldn't, could, I didn't have the courage to, to face my wife and tell her the truth and I didn't know how to. And... Suddenly I saw something in, in my mind's eye and I suddenly became more frightened of facing God than I was of what I'd done. And I, so I stopped and I stopped at that moment and walked out of the garage, walked into the house 
and and blurted out the truth. Um, went off to hospital and went to rehab shortly after. Went to a, a, a drug and alcohol rehab. Everyone said, oh, you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic. And I wasn't an alcoholic. Um, I, you know, I, I've been drunk a couple of times, but I certainly wasn't an alcoholic. I was a gambler. But I went along with it. I was At that stage, I was mentally and emotionally completely broken. Emotional breakdown, uh, crying, you name it. Uh, couldn't, couldn't hold a conversation, couldn't speak. Found myself in, in a rehab called Who's We Help Ourselves, Who's Fellowship. Went to AA meetings, said I was an alcoholic but I, when I knew I wasn't. Got sober. In practising the 12 steps at that stage, I didn't want to gamble. The, the gambling left me in, in doing the steps. I started to learn to be a bit honest, but I, but I reserved the desire in the back of my mind, when I get better, I can, I'll be able to gamble again. This reservation in the back of my mind that you know, I'll learn how to, how to control myself uh, so I can go out and gamble again. And so I played along with being an alcoholic for 20-odd years in AA. And, and again, there, they, they always thought, it would be, it's, there's something not quite honest about you. Which, yeah, you because know, I was so used to being dishonest, that was just, you know, I was used to it, it was normal until I came down to Hobart to be a support for my son. And lo and behold, I, I was having a rough time. I had a really bad leg, bad knee, they were extreme, a lot in a lot of pain, so I couldn't really work. And I found myself uh, struggling on unemployment benefit, short of money. And next thing I did, I started, oh, I know enough now to. To, 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 to practice self-control and go and start playing the pokies again to get a bit of money, get a bit of extra money. And that was, you know, the, the delusion of that was awful because I, once I started, I put that first coin in, that relief from my all my fears and that anxieties and, and the just oneness with that little screen. And, of course, they, they'd come a long way. They were quite, the graphics in the screen were quite good. And also by that stage, I also learned to play Nintendo. So I, I, video games were very, I was pretty, pretty good at. And I, and I convinced myself that I was pretty good. And if I'm pretty good at, at Nintendo video games, I'll be good at, at poker machines, which is now a, a video game, a gambling video game, you know, thinking I can do with that, which, you can, which I can't. <laughs> so how did the progression go then? Were you hooked straight from the start? Pretty much, yeah, looking back, I'd have to say yes. But I was only sort of going every fortnight, maybe 10 or 20 $30, but then that increased. And it, and it actually got to the point where I decided I have to go and find some work because I wanted to play more. And I found a, a position that was perfect because I, I became a, a night manager in a hotel here so that, you know, you start at 10 o'clock and finish at 7 o'clock in the morning. And it was a gaming room as well. And so I was able to do that. So, and that left me the, during the day to go to any casino or any the casino here or any, any um, pub that had poker machines and, and, I, could, and I could play there and, and win, a, win a mozza, so, so to speak. Of course, no, I, I just lost them. So you'd moved down to, to Tassie to be with your family. So did, did they notice you slipping into gambling? No. I hid that fairly well from them. It wasn't until my children became adults 
and other people who knew me, I thought I was be being really clever at hiding it, <laughs> as you do, <laughs> not knowing that other people saw me and were reporting it to friends of mine who were then reporting it to my children. I didn't find that out until after I uh, stopped, and that was an interesting revelation as such because I really did think I'd, I was, I'd, I'd successfully hidden it from everyone. I think that happens to a lot of gamblers, addicts and alcoholics that they think there's, there's this idea that you're smarter than everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not always the case. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> and like, and, it just, and it, got, it just got worse and worse and worse. And, and I was a smoke, practicing smoker at the time too. And after about three years of working, I started, I, start, I made the decision because smoking in, that, in those days was costing me about $60, $80 a week. And I thought, oh, look, I could be putting that in the machine. So I, I then made the decision that because I'm going in at night, I start at night, so I go in about an hour early and I walk around town and pick up all the cigarette butts, surreptitiously pick up the cigarette butts, unroll them, put in, put into a pouch, tobacco pouch, and and just buy the buy a sixty cent or fifty cent packet of um, papers, and I'd roll roll, and that would give me extra money to go and play the poker machines. I didn't think anything wrong with that. You know, I, I thought I was being clever. <laughs> yes, our cleverness gets away from us, doesn't it? Oh God, yes, yes, and and cleverness is not the same as wisdom. There is a difference between the two. <laughs> no, unfortunately. <laughs> well, listen, uh, we might take another short break. Uh, we'll have another song and do some more announcements. That's my head that I just can't shake. The same old feeling every day Cause I got no money and nowhere to be I'm a little too old to be chasing some dream Can't keep up with the rock and roll life My hangover's hurting, I feel the cold Because a wasted weekend is all I've known I'm coming to terms that it's time I go slow so I've tried the lonely road But is this how my story goes? Give me time, I'll be fine But I should have known myself Whoa. You know I'm nothing at all without you singing Wake up, wake up, won't you wake up Wake up, won't you wake up Don't waste another minute Minute of another day, wake up Wake up, won't you wake up? Wake up, won't you wake up? Don't waste another minute. Minute of another day. Oh, I can't sit around and see my life go by. Come on, roll. 
Yeah, I made a few mistakes on a bumpy ride But it's what I gotta do when I'm around from right So I tried the lonely road But this is how my story goes Give it time, I'll be fine But I shouldn't know myself Whoa. No, I'm nothing at all without you singing Wake up Wake up, won't you wake up? Wake up, won't you wake up? Don't waste another minute, minute of another day. Wake up, wake up, won't you wake up? Wake up, won't you wake up? Don't waste another minute, minute of another day. Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Tune into the 2020 Beyond the Bars CD launch on air Thursday the 12th of November. Despite the lifting of some COVID restrictions, we'll be launching this year's CD on air and online. This broadcast event will feature highlights from the July broadcast and officially launch the 2020 CD. Order your free copy of the CD now from 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars 2020. Been locked up for the last five years and I always run in the family in here. There's that, that many, that much of my family in here. It's not funny. This is the point not only in here, and in Dame Phyllis too, you know what I mean? So, and there's a lot of women, Aboriginal women, locked up to it at the moment. It's not a decrease in, in the last few years, it's just more or less increasing. This doesn't make sense sometimes, you know? Tune in on Thursday the 12th of November at 2pm for the launch.
So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Robert about recovering from compulsive gambling with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. So, Robert, we haven't talked much about Gamblers Anonymous. So what was the event that caused you to seek help for your gambling specifically? Right. So as I, as I mentioned, I was, I was working full time as a night manager in a hotel. I'd been evicted because I stopped paying rent course and I owed about ten thousand dollars to the housing commission here they evicted me and I'm still hanging out to win the big one to 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 fix all my problems so I'm now living on the street down there's a there's a a rivulet down down in South Hobart so I'd be sleeping in there during the day because I was working at night on on a park bench or under a bush or a tree so I just look like I'm I'm somebody that's that's having a having a bit of a nap in the sun but I'm, I'm of course I'm during winter, that's, that gets a bit cold. So, And when it rained, I would then go and sleep behind this store in town, which had an overhang and a whole lot of pallets. And I would put the pallets up in front of me so that people couldn't see me and I'd sleep on the pallet there. I did have, when I started doing that, I had a sleeping bag. I was able to grab a, and it was a very good sleeping bag, uh, minus 28 degrees or minus 30 degrees or something. But somebody found it or I stashed it in the, in the bushes and, and, and took it. But I, fortunately, then I found this really big, huge plastic bag that you could actually stand in. And every day when I left work, I'd take a, a, a newspaper and I would then hold inside the bag with the newspapers and then sleep on these pallets. And that, that was the way I was sleeping on the weekends because, you know, my weekends, I, nothing. Of course, I, was, I had no money and... I only had two sets of clothes. So I, what I was doing is because I, was, I also did a bit of kitchen hand work and I was, I was also a, a relief breakfast chef at, at the hotel, I would take my, my other set of clothes in with me, put them through the dishwasher, commercial dishwasher, to wash them and then dry them, hang them up during the night so that when I finished the, finished the shift, I had a new set of clothes for the next night and I would just exchange them each day. And, and just hanging out to bring the, win the big one, hanging out to win the big one. That's going to fix everything. Hanging out to win the big one, which never came, of course. And oh, once it did come, I won't because oh, we try not to talk about figures, but enough to pretty almost enough to pretty much clear all my debts and give me a start. And I couldn't use it to pay off because it wasn't quite. It was, it was a bit short. So, of course, because it was a bit short, oh, well, I'll, I'll risk a, a couple of dollars. And next thing I know, this whole huge amount of money just disappeared within three weeks and not one cent was used for anything other than the poker machines. It literally all disappeared back through the poker machines. And I, I knew I shouldn't. 
uh, but I couldn't control it. I could not control. I couldn't. I, I knew I should be saying no to myself, but I was unable to say no to myself, which was just, yeah, which that you know certainly that drove me insane. So I, I'm here. I am, and it's middle of winter here in in um, June, July of 2012, and I'm getting sick. I, and I've, I've got I've got pneumonia. I've got pleurisy. I've got hypothermia. It's zero to one degrees outside in, in Hobart. Every time I'm coughing, I'm breaking a rib. I, had a, I think I had four broken broken ribs and two fractured ribs. And I'm laying here on the, I'm laying on a, on a on these pallets in the plastic bag full of full of newspapers to keep me warm. And I suddenly realise I may not make it through the night. I'm I'm, I'm I've become that sick. And, I'm, and now I'm becoming frightened. My hope of winning is has left me because I don't know if I'll last it to the next payday. And I get up. It's about eleven o'clock at night, and I, and I get up and I think I can't because you can't sleep when you when you're that frightened. So uh, I pack my stuff away and, I, and I've gone walking around town, and all I can think about is gambling. And the other part, the only other thing I call the thing was was the inability to forgive my mother for throwing me away when, when I was a kid. That was, that, that was all that my mind could occupy me with. Uh, the gambling, the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm really, really unwell, and uh, this inability to forgive my mother. And I'm wandering around town, and then I finally bite the bullet, and I beg Christ to save me. And I'm, I'm not doing that out aloud. I don't want to. I don't want to talk. Be talking out loud in case somebody thinks I'm mad. In case you, if you understand what I'm saying. In case it gets any crazier than it is. <laughs> I know I'm mad, but I don't want other people to think I'm mad. Here, you know. Jeez. Anyway, so so um, and I'm so I'm mentally praying, walking around town, and ten seconds after I've I've begged Christ to save me. This woman just turns around. She's standing on a bus stop holding her teenage daughter's hand and she just walks up to me, sticks her finger in my face and goes, Jesus Christ loves you and you'll find a bed in Bethlehem House tonight. Jeez. Anyone can take that however they want, but I got this very overpowering sense that God was giving me a way out here. And, and it was only about a 15-minute walk from where I stood at that time to go up to Beth House, which is run by Sir Vincent de Paul, and it's for homeless men. But it took me, and I, and I thought, yep, okay, because I, you know, I was really sick and I really needed, and I really needed to, to get into a warm place. So I, I started walking, walking up there. It took me an hour and a half to get there. And the reason for that was to overcome my pride because I had to ask somebody else for help actually ask them for help and that was that was a really difficult thing to do for me even though I was on death's doorstep and as I said like you know, I could hardly breathe because I had four broken ribs and two fractured ribs and with the, the pleurisy and the pneumonia I was I was really struggling so but it took me an hour because I had to ask someone for help and that was the beginning of the end I walked up there and I said look I've got a problem with gambling and I need some help. And they took me and 
Fortunately, the, there was a counsellor there. He was an AA counsellor, so he knew the 12 steps and he helped me He helped me with that, with the 12 steps and I, and I was using that, but I was doing it on my own. I mean, the counsellor, one hour a week of a counsellor is not enough. And I think it took me about two years of doing it on my own and finally I conceded that maybe, maybe I should go to Gamblers Anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's when I I walked into a, the G, the only GA uh, meeting in in Tasmania, which was which was here in Hobart, and there I, and there was only two other people there at that time, and um, and I heard them say that they were obsessive, that they were compulsive gamblers, and even then it took me probably about six or seven months to you know I'd say my my name is Robert, and I've got a problem with gambling, but. Slowly, I got to see, like, and also working on this business of, of telling the truth about myself and working out what the truth really is. And when I when I had a, a, an honest look at myself, I went, okay, yep, I am compulsive. And not only am I compulsive, I'm obsessive. Because once I get the, the compulsion to, to gamble, I don't stop until I've got nothing left. Uh, so yeah, and I, was, I hadn't I hadn't gambled at that stage for about two and a half years up to up to that point. But I was white knuckling it, you know, absolutely white, terrified, frightened of ever gambling again. And as soon as my ears heard me say that my name is Robert and I'm a compulsive, obsessive gambler, the desire left me. It just went. It was quite dramatic for me, but it was amazing. And I could see that it, it just wasn't there. So I, I was, I thought, well, okay, this is a good place for me, and I, I was able to learn to be honest about where I'm at, what I'm doing, how I'm doing today, what I need to do today uh, to move forward. And f- for me today, I'm, I'm um, working. I, I restore antique furniture. I'm working as a volunteer for St Vincent de Paul and in their kitchen, in their Louis Van kitchen. I help keep the kitchen clean, prepare it, help supply it to, to so that the teens every night they go out to, to feed the homeless have got everything they need and, tr- and to maintain that on a daily basis. That sounds good. So did you resolve your issues with your mother? Yeah, look, um, and I had to sit down and, and, and pray. I had to pray for her. I had to pray for me, uh, as, as was suggested in, in an Eleanor meeting that I went to. And I just went, look, God, I don't know how to forgive her. And that was the truth. I was, I was honest with God about it. I don't know how. So I know I'm supposed to forgive her. I don't know why, but I know I'm supposed to forgive her. Uh, so please show me how. And it took about anywhere between three and, and probably more closer to five months. Slowly but surely, my memory unfolded. And what I saw was, she was just as powerless over her addiction and the way she was with, with alcohol, um, morphine and gambling as I was over the gambling. And as soon as I saw Alice as she was, I suddenly understood she couldn't help herself. What she did, she did that out of, out of her, her dis-ease and out of the addiction, and she really couldn't help herself, and, and I needed to forgive her for that. 
to this day, I, I don't hold it against her anymore. And, and amazingly, I've got peace about, about my past, which is why I can share it fairly clearly today, if that helps somebody else. Um, and it's why I go to schools and share it with kids at schools. So they don't, they don't know either. So, you know, my understanding is that it's once you can respect the other person's right to live the way they, they want to, it helps. Did that help you to, to, to respect her right to be the way she was? I don't think she, I don't think she was doing that. I, I don't think she was living the way she wanted to. I think she was living the way she had to because of the circumstance. And she couldn't, and I don't believe she actually could help herself in what, in what she was doing or why she was doing it. And I strongly believe it was because of all the denial that was being practiced in our home. Uh, for me, being able to tell the truth about where I've been, what's happened and how it is today uh, and how I am today, irrespective of how that might sound, I can admit my wrongs fairly quickly today because I know how important it is. And she could never... She was powerless over the way she was and what she did. And, and she never got to see, she died an alcoholic in, in hospital. She never got to see recovery at all. All it would have taken was to be able to tell the truth and she, she didn't know how to. Did you ever reconcile with your dad as well? I always felt sorry for my dad. I thought, I, I saw the powerlessness in him. Um, yeah, I, I did. I felt so. I blamed everything on my mother, and I, and that was my mistake. That was my my real error or my wrong. It was the addiction that was the problem. And um, I, I look. I grew up believing, and that was part of my recovery too. I grew up believing that it, the money was the problem. Money was the problem between them. That was what 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 uh, that they lost their marriage. I lost my parents because of money. And, I, and it wasn't until I started getting honest in, in the 12-step program and learning to, to um, look at things through, through honest eyes, truthful eyes, that I came to, to realise it was the gambling, the alcohol and the morphine uh, and, the addiction, and the addictive nature uh, and the ability, inability to tell the truth. And that's the beauty of this program is, you know, you, you hear it's the honesty that helps us stay sober one day at a time. I cannot afford to gamble today. I know that. And and today, like it's it's eight, you know, eight, eight years and four months for me. Uh, not one gamble, not one cent. Extremely grateful for that. And um, about three and a half years ago, one of the things, and it took me a while to actually see in the, in the fourth step, do a, a thorough moral and financial, a fearless and thorough moral and financial inventory. I never saw the financial part. I only ever saw the moral part. And suddenly realised it says financial. I went, oh, wow. So I sat down and, and had an honest look at myself financially and I had to come to the conclusion I've been financially irresponsible most of my life because I blamed money for what happened to my parents in my childhood. I didn't want to know about it. Now, on seeing that, and admitting, and, I, and I, I went, as soon as I saw it, I went to the next next AGA meeting and went, I'm I'm financially irresponsible. And they just looked at me in shock and went, what do you mean? I'm financially irresponsible. And because of that little bit of bedrock of truth, I start, because I, I, I that was where my starting point was, I started, I started to become financially responsible from that day. Today, I'm able to save money. 
I could never do that before, which is one of, one of the reasons I've, I've always been financially insecure. Amazing, bloody miracle as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if you'd like to find out more about Gamblers Anonymous, uh, then you can phone them in Victoria on 03 9696 6108 or go online at gaustralia.org.au for more information and local phone contacts in your area. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Robert for sharing his gambling recovery story with us and talking about how Gamblers Anonymous has helped him. Thanks, Robert. You're welcome. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for the invitation. Pleasure. Hopefully somebody gets something out of it that helps them stop or not start in the first place. Yeah. This interview contained descriptions and discussions about suicidal thoughts and mental health illness and those may be distressing to some listeners. If this raises questions or causes distress, please call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll feature a guest from Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay tuned now for Beyond the Bars coming straight up. See you next week.